We're going to be looking in Psalm 119 at verses 17 through 24. Your Bible will label that with Gimel. That's the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 119 is arranged in these kind of eight verse bursts around the Hebrew alphabet. So Aleph was the first one, then Beit is the second one, then Gimel, then you'll get Dalit and so forth. And if you keep paying attention, you may memorize the Hebrew alphabet. You never know. Then you'll be Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, He, Vav, Zion, Hate, Tate. You know, you'll just start doing that kind of thing. And you might put it to a song like Yankee Doodle Dandy. That's how I memorized it. If you want to memorize this, is the tune I use. Anyway, all right. So Psalm 119 and verse 17. Let's read that together. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Let me pray. Father, we pray that we would receive this for what it is, the word of the Lord. Help us to understand this prayer, this song, this prayer that helps us to understand what it means to walk as a godly sojourner on this earth. We recognize that the opening of the word of God and expositing of the text isn't even half the battle for our understanding and belief and obedience but that we need Your Spirit to illumine our minds and our hearts. We need Him to show us the truth from Your Word. We trust that He will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of my favorite books is Pilgrim's Progress. I return to that book again and again. I've shared it with my children on more than one occasion. If you haven't read it, it's the story of a man named Christian, and it's really an allegory about the Christian life. Christian is walking on the king's highway, headed for the celestial city. And in this allegory about the Christian life, it's basically telling you the story of what it's like as a Christian sojourner who's on the way to our true home. There are several characters in the story who come and encourage Christian to take a different road, an easier road, a path that requires less difficulty, less struggle, less suffering, a path that allows him to trust himself rather than trusting the Lord. A path that heeds the counsel of men, rather than the Word of God. And the longer I walk on the King's Highway, if you will, to the Celestial City, the more I appreciate the brilliance of Bunyan's understanding of the journey. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, it's one of those books you ought to read as fast as you can, soon as you can. Spurgeon read it more than once a year. They say he read it over a hundred times. It was such an important book to him, and I can see why. Sojourning on this earth is difficult. We can easily be pulled away from the path. This is particularly true when we face the opposition of the world and the flesh and the devil. Now, I know as modern men, we struggle to believe that we really are in a battle against principalities and powers. But Paul says quite clearly in Ephesians 6 that we are. And we need God's grace and God's guidance to keep us on the path. You see, we're walking down a narrow path toward the celestial city, toward our home, and we must have God's grace 
We must have God's guidance in his word or we will stray. We will. We need the law and the gospel. We need the word and the spirit. And this morning we see these very themes in Psalm 119, 17 through 24. David prays for the Lord's grace and the Lord's guidance to walk as a sojourner on this earth. That's what he's praying for. Keep in mind that this psalm is a prayer, a prayer that's meant to be sung. And we're going to take the psalm, really this third section of the psalm, under two headings. The first heading is this, longing for God's word in verses 17 through 20. So we're going to walk through verses 17 through 20 and think about longing for God's word. And the second heading is fearing God's word, verses 21 through 24. So we're going to talk about longing for God's word in the first few verses and then fearing God's word. So let's talk first about longing for God's word. Look at Psalm 119 and verse 17. We'll just read 17 to 20 as a unit and then we'll walk through them. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Note the first thing that David asks for. Deal bountifully with your servant. He is asking God to deal with him graciously. He's actually asking for recompense or reward. But he's saying it in this way. Give me a gracious recompense or a gracious reward. In other words, let my reward or my wage or my recompense be in accord with your grace and not in accord with my merit. Deal bountifully with me. And deal bountifully in what way? I need you to reward me with grace, in accord with grace, that I may, what? That I may live and keep your word. That I may live and keep your word. David knows he needs God's grace to live and to keep his word. David's enemies wanted him dead. They were plotting to take his life. We'll see that later in this section of the psalm where he says the princes plot against me. They wanted him dead. They were plotting to take his life. And he wants to continue on living. As Christians, death is our enemy. We're not supposed to long for death. Yes, we should long to be with the Lord. But we want to keep on living. We don't want to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We'd rather the Lord return and we meet him in the air. He wants to continue living, but note how he wants to live. Look at that phrase. That I may live, now notice this, and keep your word. I want you to hear this. David does not want to keep on living if living means disobedience to the Lord. He doesn't want to keep living and sin. He wants to keep living and walk in godliness. He wants to live and obey. That's true life. That's the blessed life. Look at Psalm 119 verse 1 as we start the psalm. Blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Think of what we get in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. This is the blessed man. To continue living apart from God, to continue living apart from God's word, apart from holiness, To continue living that way is a curse. It's misery. It's not blessing and bounty. 
It's misery and cursing. That's why God was gracious enough to kick rebellious Adam and Eve out of the garden, that they might not eat from the tree of life and live forever under the curse. So David longs for God's word. He wants it more than he wants anything else. He can't imagine life apart from God's word. So he says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Really, we see three needs here that David recognizes he has and three needs that we share. It's not just David that has these needs. We have these needs. Yes, the psalmist is writing for the people of his time, but the spirit is the ultimate author of this text. And he's speaking not just to him, but to us. We have these needs. So what are the three needs? First, I need God's grace. Here's the first need. And this is why we long for his word, because I need God's grace to keep God's word. That's what he's getting at in verse 17 and 18. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. See, if you're not gracious to me, I will neither keep breathing, my heart won't keep beating, nor will I keep your word. I won't do either thing. Deal bountifully with me that I might keep your word. Look what he goes on to say in verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Without God's grace, I will not see the wondrous things in his word. I will not see the wondrous things in his law. And to fail to see the wondrous things in his word would be my undoing. See, this is a Christian prayer. I need God to illumine my mind so that I might understand his word. I need him to do that. David knows God gave him any spiritual sight that he has. And he knows that only the Lord can remove any further blindness from his eyes, any further deafness from his ears, any further darkness from his mind, any further hardness from his heart. Only the Lord, by his grace, can remove that. He knows that, and he wants him to do it. Paul understood this well. That's why he prayed for the church along these lines. Listen to Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So he's thanking God for them. And now listen, here's what he's praying for them. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Then he goes on to tell them what he wants them to know, so that you might know the riches of his grace is what he's essentially going to get at the blessings you have in Christ. I want God to give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Listen, the point here isn't Paul randomly saying, I want you to have some kind of charismatic gifts that you might look down the future and see things that are coming. That's not what he's praying for at all. He's praying very expressly that God would illumine their minds and their hearts so they would understand God's blessings to them in Christ. Our pastors are often motivated to pray this way for ourselves and for you all. Why? Because I can open the Bible every single week and exposit the text, but I can't open a single eye. I can take a blind man to see the most glorious sights in the world, but I can't make him see them. So I will say something counterintuitive as I preach the Bible to you today. The greatest need you have is not for me to open the Bible before you and show you the truth of God's word. The greatest need you have is for the spirit of God to graciously open your eyes to see the beauty of the word, the verities that are here that will save your souls. Now, the spirit does that when I open the Bible. 
I remember well when the Lord first opened my eyes to the glory of his word like never before. It was October of 1998. I don't remember the exact date, but I do remember it was October of 1998. Teresa and I had been married at that time for almost four years, just two months short of four years. We were believers. We were both public school teachers. She taught in elementary school and I taught in the Kern High School District. We religiously went to church. We tithed. That was her thing, not mine, but we did it anyway. When she first told me we'd be tithing, I thought she'd lost her mind. And then she's like, no, this is biblical. This is what we'll be doing. So I, okay, you're right. Okay. So we went to small group, like every week. We served in our church. We were friends with some of the pastors. In fact, my best friend at the time was one of the pastors at our church. We were moral people. We voted for the right guys. We thought we were pretty solid Christians. I will tell you something else that was true about me. I was a believer, but I did not have a hunger and thirst for the word. I don't mean I didn't want to to read it at all. Whatever hunger or thirst I had for the word was incredibly shallow. Like I didn't want a big full glass of water. Just a little spritz of something was enough for me. I didn't ignore it. I just didn't pant for it. I was young and things were going well and we thought we had our life together, so I didn't pant for it. I knew I didn't know enough of the word, and so I went to a Bible conference called Ligonier Conference, October 1998. I will never forget sitting there as a person who couldn't have told you the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament at the time. I mean, I knew there was an Old Testament and New Testament, but I wasn't aware of which books necessarily were where. And I will never forget R.C. Sproul teaching on the Trinitarian love of God, something I didn't even know was a thing. I even remember the verse. He was preaching out of John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. I walked out of that session a different man, a different person. Prior to that, I wanted to be a godly man. I wanted to have a nice family. I was happy being a high school teacher. When I walked out, I wanted to know God and his word like a kind of consuming longing. The spirit did a work in me, and it was a longing that has never been quenched since. I wanted to know the word and teach the word, and sort of the rest is history. 23 years later, it hasn't slowed down. I'm sure that was the moment the Lord called me, at least internally called me, to pastoral ministry. I wouldn't have called at that time because I didn't realize that pastors spent their lives studying and teaching the Bible. Seriously, I had no idea. So when somebody said, you want to be a pastor? No, why not? Because I don't want to stand up and give motivational speeches. I don't find myself to be that humorous nor that motivating. (laughs) So like I want to teach the Bible and I don't think pastors really do that. I learned otherwise by God's grace. See, I need God's grace to keep God's word. I need it. Second need, I need God's word to see the narrow path home. I need God's word to see the narrow path home. Look at Psalm 119, 19. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Now, in what sense is David a sojourner? Well, in the ultimate sense, this earth is not his home. I know we can get caught up thinking the promised land was Israel's home, but Israel knew it was not. They had only to read Leviticus to know that. Leviticus 25, 23, the Lord says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. 
They'd always known that even in the land, it wasn't their ultimate home. Abraham was always looking forward to the city whose architect and builder was God. The people of Israel were always looking forward to that. And as a stranger and sojourner on the earth, David knew that he needed God's commandments. He needed it. The word of God was his solace in exile. It was his only way of seeing, listen, it was his only way of seeing through a sea of sufferings and persecutions. It's all he had. The word of God is the way. The word of God is the light to my path. Look at Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. See, if God's law is kept from me, how do I see my way home? That's what he's saying. Don't hide your commandments from me. Show me them. Because if you keep them from me as a sojourner on this earth, I will never find my way home. I need God's grace to keep me in his word, to cause my eyes to be open, to see it for what it is. And I need God's word in order to see the narrow path home. And third, third need, I need God's word to persevere even one more day. Hear that? I need God's word to persevere even one more day. Look at verse 20. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times or your judgments or your decrees. My soul is consumed with longing for your decrees at all times. This word consumed with may not be the most effective translation in English. It's a fine word, but the way we hear it, both the connotations we get from it, I want you to hear how the King James uses it. I think their word is a little more effective, as is the NASB here. The King James says, my soul breaks with longing. It's a good translation. The NASB says, my soul is crushed with longing. I think that's helpful. Crushed with longing for your rules at all times. My soul breaks with longing for your word. My soul is crushed with longing for your word. I desperately need your word. I want a more sound knowledge and practice of your laws. You can almost hear the psalmist, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, O God. As a sojourner on the earth, I feel more and more the desperate need for God's word. I need God's standard and God's judgment to sort through life in this world. I need it. I want to hear God's judgment on how to handle particular issues righteously. Don't you? There are a million voices telling us how things ought to be and sorting through that, particularly in the midst of suffering and persecution. You hear a million voices telling you how it ought to be and you think, my soul is crushed for your word. I need your judgments. I need to know the truth. I need God to speak and show me in his word how to handle every moment of life. Listen, if you ever suffer, if you are ever persecuted or mistreated or slandered or conspired against, you know this prayer. Lord, my soul is crushed with longing for your word. I need you to speak into my heart and mind and help me understand your determinate counsel in this situation. I long for your word. That's why I cannot avoid the gathering of the saints. I will never forget going through a season of intense suffering where I just had to come to church. And Jason at the time had taken over and was preaching most of the time. I would just come in late because I couldn't face people. I would sit in the back and then I would leave as quickly as I could, but I couldn't not be there. And I had to be there 
because I needed to hear from the Lord. I just sat in the back and cried and listened to what the Lord had to say for months and months and months. He was all I had. He was all I needed. I knew that, but I want you to hear this. It was soul-crushingly difficult to cling to that. So we need to long for God's word. We need to long for God's word. We need to fear God's word as well. Second major point I want to look at in section of the text, fearing God's word. We don't just want to long for God's word. We want to fear God's word. Say, we want to fear God, right? Yes. And if you fear God, you fear his word. Look at Psalm 119, verses 21 through 24. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. See, David fears the Lord. He knows that what his son wrote was true. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. David is the man described in Isaiah 66 too. He's like that man. Look at Isaiah 66, if you will. Isaiah 66 in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. So you want to ask this question. God isn't looking to the man who thinks he can do great things for God because you can't do anything for him. He created it all. You can't add anything to him. It's like you can put the Lord in your debt. The Lord owes no man. Everything you do was first a gift from him. So then the question is, to whom does he look? If I can't indebt him in some way, to whom does he look? But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. Now listen to this. And trembles at my word. This portion of David's prayer is David humbly trembling at God's word. Trembles at his word. And I want to take these verses in verses 21 through 24 under two headings. First, God will judge lawless men. Verse 21. Second, God will vindicate his people, verses 22 through 24. It's because of this that David fears the Lord. First, God will judge lawless men. Look at Psalm 119 and verse 21. You rebuke the insolent. That's the arrogant, the prideful. You rebuke them, the accursed ones, or those who are cursed, who wander from your commandments. God rebukes the insolent, the arrogant, the proud. Now, who are those people? Who are the insolent, the arrogant, the proud? Well, let me answer that by first saying what they're not or who they're not. Because I think we get confused about this culturally. The insolent, the proud, the arrogant are not those who hold firmly to the truth of God's word as delivered to us. In other words, it isn't prideful to believe in objective truth. It certainly isn't prideful to receive God's word as true. It is true. You're never prideful for believing God's word. That's the definition of humility. I believe what God says. One caveat to that. If you think that you believe God's word because you're naturally wise, while your friends don't believe God's word because they're naturally foolish, then see the first half of the sermon. My point is that believing the objective truth in God's word and being moved to bow before that standard is not pride. 
Rather, you're prideful for rejecting God's word. Look at the second half of verse 21. It's telling you, you rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. That's who those people are. The people who wander from God's word, they're the prideful people. It's the same thing you see in Isaiah 66 too. This is the one to whom I look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. How do I know who that person is? He trembles at my word. The person who wanders from my word, the person who arrogantly, high-handedly sins against or rebels against my word, that's the arrogant person. The person who rejects God's word with a high hand. They knowingly and unrepentantly walk in sin and rebellion. They do not stay on the narrow path. They think they know a better way. Pride is trust in yourself and your own thoughts. That's what pride is. Humility is trust in God and his word. Humility is not an aesthetic. You know what I mean by an aesthetic? Like the aesthetics of this room aren't great. <laughs> you guys understand what I mean by that? Okay. Humility is not like a vibe you get from people. That guy's real humble. Like the first time you meet somebody, man, they're so humble. If you're saying that, you're misdefining humility. You don't know anything about whether they trust God and his word. You get a vibe from them that feels humble to you. So what? People can put on airs really well. Time will tell. A man is not humble because he seems so to you. A man is humble who trembles at God's word. The humble man trusts the Lord and fears the Lord. The bottom line is this. The prideful man does not listen to God's word. But I don't want you to miss what David says here about God's judgment of the prideful. God rebukes the insolent, the prideful. He curses them. That's why we don't have to avenge ourselves because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We can trust him to do it. The man who fears the Lord knows the danger. Listen to this, please get this. The man who fears the Lord knows the danger for the man who fails to fear the Lord. He knows that. That's why he wants to tell him the gospel. So David trusts God to deal with his prideful, unbelieving enemies. He trusts him. You'll deal with them. God will judge lawless men. You can count on that. You can take it to the bank. God will judge lawless men. When we see people persecuting Christians, we can rest in the fact that God will deal with them decisively. Further, second, God will vindicate his people. Look at verses 22 through 24. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. See, David wants the Lord to remove the reproach of his enemies who attack him. Look what he says. Take away from me scorn and contempt. He does not like having his name slandered. He wants it to end. He doesn't like that people are plotting against him. Particularly powerful people are plotting against him. Princes are plotting against him. He wants the reproach of his enemies removed. Why? For I have kept your testimonies. In other words, I've followed your word. My conscience is clear. The Lord has promised peace and the conquering of enemies for his people. And David is longing for this justice. David is being opposed, notice that language, by princes. Verse 23, even though princes sit plotting against me. Perhaps this is referring to his own son. If you remember uh, David's own son, Absalom, and the story of Absalom, Absalom would go to the city gate and he would stand at the city gate and here's the summary of what he would say. If I were king, if I were in charge, 
then you would get the justice you deserve and desire. I know my father isn't giving you what you really want. If I were king, then you'd get it. That's the summary statement. Absalom knew a better way, and he wanted those in power to know it. He had his list of complaints. It was as if Absalom sat down, wrote out his list of complaints, and then published them at the city gate. Here are the things that are wrong with my dad as king. Make me king. I'm wiser than him. He was turning the people against his own father. Listen, to be slandered by those who are closest to you is difficult. Imagine being slandered by your own son. Further, to be slandered by those in power is difficult. We know that because that's precisely what cancel culture does, isn't it? Cancel culture is basically those who have cultural cachet shaming other people for the things they say or do. They turn the lever of cultural shame against you. But note that David was not accused by Absalom. Please pay attention to this. He was not accused by Absalom of being a godly man. Absalom didn't stand at the gate and say, my dad is a godly king who does the right thing. I trust his judgment. Persecution and plotting are rarely on the basis of your virtue and faith. No one generally says, hey, let's gossip and slander and plot against and kill that man because he is so godly and holy and he loves Jesus so much. You generally don't hear that. Friends, even Jesus was being accused of insurrection. Jesus is a danger to the nation. He wants to overthrow those in power. He's a dangerous kind of citizen. Ought we not put him to death? He was a threat to the nation. He's a threat to the Jewish religious leaders. He was a, you guys remember the charge? A friend of sinners, drunks, and prostitutes. In other words, Jesus is not even a decent human being. He's a bad person with bad motives. That was the charge against him. That's the basis on which they plotted against him. He was slandered as an immoral insurrectionist, all of which was untrue. People will literally sit down, write out their concerns, and meet with everyone but you. They don't meet with you because they're slandering you. They have no love for you. That's called plotting. There is no righteousness in that. It is purely wicked sin. Notice that David wants the Lord to take away such scorn. David wants his name to be redeemed, but he knows that his conscience is clear. Look what he says, for I have kept your testimonies. You know, people often ask me, because they've noticed that I get criticized some, how do you take so much criticism? And I joke and say something that's really not true. I say, well, I don't really care what people think about me. It's not really true. I do have thick skin, but it's not impenetrable skin. Just like you, I feel every sting. I hate them. I sometimes, though rarely, lose sleep over them. So how do I get through them? Well, usually Jason hears a lot from me, as does my wife. I remind myself that Christ is my justification. I pray. By God's grace, I'm willing to endure all the stings of the evil one that I must for the sake of Christ and his word and his church, though I often hate it. Now listen, that doesn't mean I'm a hero. It means I'm a Christian. That's what Christians do. We endure the stings of the evil one for the sake of Christ and his word and his church. We don't love it. David's longing it would be taken away. But we endure it. Yes, we all want a good name, and we should. But we entrust our name to him. If we have a good conscience, that will bear us up. You know what you do when you're slandered? You go to the people who know you best, whom you trust, who will speak the truth to you, and you ask them, are these things true of me? Did I do these things? If they are, you repent. If they aren't, then you just go to the Lord and pray and trust him. 
Spurgeon has a helpful word on this. To be slandered and then to be despised in consequence of the vile accusation is a grievous affliction. The one who says, I care nothing for my reputation is not wise. For in Solomon's esteem, a good name is better than precious ointment. The best way to deal with slander is to pray about it. God will either remove it or remove the sting from it. Our own attempts at clearing ourselves are usually failures. Be quiet and let your advocate plead your cause. That's why David says what he does in verses 23 through 24. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. See, while the princes plot against David, he meditates on the word. It's an interesting contrast, isn't it? They're plotting evil, meditating, if you will, even on evil, and David's meditating on the word. While they have their wicked counselors, he has the word of God as his counselor. At the end of the day, David is saying, I won't forsake the truth of God's word for all the world's applause. I trust you to deal with my enemies. We've seen examples of men like this throughout history. We love men like Athanasius. If you haven't heard of Athanasius, Athanasius is a man who was exiled in the 4th century for nearly 30 years defending the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. If you want to get really, really technical, he was defending a diphthong. You know what a diphthong is? It's when you take two letters and put them together and they sound two vowels. Okay, you put them together and make a sound. So is Jesus homoousius or homoousius with the Father? Say, what? Homoousius or homoousius? What's the difference? Is he like him? Oi, is he like him? Or ooh, is he the same as him? Is he of the same substance or of a like substance? The whole Roman Empire hung on a diphthong. And here, Athanasius was actually exiled for 30 years over saying, saying the son is like the father is insufficient. He is of the same substance of the father. 30 years. We have a saying about him, Athanasius contramundum, Athanasius against the world. Or we think of Martin Luther. He is the man who stood for the gospel before the Holy Roman Emperor. We think of him usually when we think of the 95 theses that he nailed on the Wittenberg door and we say, there's the way the Reformation began, October 31st, 1517. Not quite accurate. That's where Luther became well known. But actually, if you read the 95 theses, Luther is still a solid Catholic priest at that point. He hasn't embraced Protestant doctrine. He's toyed around with it in some earlier documents, but that is a solidly Catholic document at that point. It is in 1518 and 1519 that Luther begins to, in his study of Romans, understand that in recent years the church has been fouling up the doctrine of justification. And so he begins to write about that. He writes against the Pope. He writes against the doctrine that's being taught commonly in his day. And he really ticks off the empire when he writes a letter basically to all the kings of Europe saying, it's up to you to throw the Pope out because he's corrupt. That didn't go over very well with the Pope, you could imagine, nor the Holy Roman Emperor. So he was called to what was called the Diet of Worms in 1521. And when he came to the Diet of Worms of 1521, understand the scene. The greatest thinkers in the church were present. The Holy Roman Emperor was present at the trial. The Pope himself was not. And Luther comes before them. They put his books in front of him, and they say, are you going to recant? He asked for a day to think about it. <laughs> you can understand why. He wrestles with it. He doesn't wrestle with the fear of being killed. 
He's not going to be killed immediately at that scene. He's so wildly popular at this point. There's hundreds of thousands of people outside, standing outside, cheering for him. He knows they can't kill him there. They will try to eventually. That's not his fear. You know what his fear is? Am I so prideful as to think that I have the truth and these men don't? And he wrestles with that. And then he stands before them and they ask him to recant the next day. And he says this, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Now, we often hear that and think, that's a heroic man. See, we love to talk about men like Athanasius and Luther. We love to make heroes of such men and laud their courage so long as they're already dead. But we rarely want to do that while they're living. See, when they're alive, we wonder why they insist on doing things that embarrass us and make us look bad. We do so because we fear man more than we fear God. That's why. Doug Wilson, a man who I'm not commending his work to you, by the way, I'm not a fan of his work. He did have a fairly brilliant quote on this note, though, that I am going to quote. He says this, Desperate times call for faithful men and not for careful men. The careful men come later and write the biographies of the faithful men, lauding them for their courage. (laughs) And I suppose that's what I'm calling us to, Sovereign Grace. The fear of the Lord, trembling at his word, rather than trembling at the jeers of men. May we trust him, fear him, long for and delight in his word above all else. Our world is increasingly seeing God's word as foolishness. This world will likely continue to wag their fingers and their tongues at us. Will you fear them or will you fear God? Will you long for their approval or will you long for God's word? May the last two stanzas of the battle hymn of the Reformation, a a mighty fortress is our God, be our song. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks that you have kindly, graciously spoken to us. May we be a people who long for your word, who fear your word, who tremble before you who look to Christ, our Savior, the one who was crucified for our sins, who was resurrected for our justification. May we look to him. We know he longed for your word and that he feared God rightly. We know that he kept your word in all things. We confess that we have often failed, that we do often fail to tremble before your word, to trust you and obey. We also know that we look to one who never failed, kept your law in every regard, who was tempted in every way, yet without sin, and who paid for our sins on the cross. May we look to him, Jesus Christ our Lord. May we, by your spirit, receive your word, 
with joy and so walk in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.